0: I personally think that, yeah, there's leaders who are just innately have it by their nature, but for the rest of us mere mortals, look around and look for opportunities and be teachable and just yeah, value your people and get on board with the idea of servant leadership. I think that is just so important. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the
1: wisdom, knowledge, and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taking those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest on today's episode is Peter Lipset, who's served in the Royal Australian Navy for almost 20 years as a maritime warfare officer, and helicopter pilot, Peter had operational service in the Middle East. I have to be honest, Peter and I have actually known each other since we were the 15 years of age when we joined the Royal Australian Naval College, and I can remember that Peter always wanted to fly, and when he left full-time service, he actually joined Qantas, Australia's national airline, flying domestically and internationally. We actually haven't seen each other much, so it was great to catch up on the conversation on the Frontline the Boardroom podcast. As an aviation professional, his flying career has been extensive. Command qualified on nine military aircraft and four commercial airliners, including the classic Jumbo and the A380. He's got 17,000 hours of flying experience and including 1,300 deck landings on ships in the middle of the ocean. Peter has always been passionate about flight safety training and how we equip crews with operationally relevant human factor skills. And we explored a lot of that in our conversation. What I loved about our chat was the importance of connection and how you can form a team very quickly just by establishing that relationship early. He also shared something called the authority gradient and the willingness to speak up and how that might work. And he explained it from a perspective of being in an aviation cockpit, but I can see how it could work in other places as well. And the last thing was sharing his experience from a mid-air crisis over the Indian Ocean during a flight from Singapore to Perth. Well, Peter Lepsut, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show.
0: Thanks, Martin. Glad to be here and to keep in touch with you over all these years. Yeah, look, I think for the benefit of the listeners, we probably need to declare the fact that we both joined the Navy at the age of 15
1: or so, a few too many years ago to remember. But hey, it's great to
0: be in touch again. So, Yeah, just to be clear, it was over 40 years, <laughs> less than 45. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Thankfully, we've all
1: changed a bit. Yes. The way we start this podcast always is to just have a conversation about how did you end up joining the Navy?
0: Well, it's probably not a a terribly interesting story, but I just, as a young guy, I really, really, really wanted to leave home and I I wanted to go and get on with life. And I think that was characteristic of a lot of us. And I started looking at options and that was one of them. Now, to be honest, I always wanted to fly aeroplanes or helicopters or both which is another part of my story, but I couldn't join the Air Force till I'd finished Year 12. I could join the Navy after Year 10. So that's what I did, and the rest is history, kind of. Yeah. So where did you join from? Okay, so I grew up in Canberra and left school at the end of Year 10, same as you, hmm. and, yeah, I just sort of always had that idea that that might be a cool job to do, mm-hmm. flying. Yeah. So who were those leadership
1: influences on your Early in your career, either before you joined the Navy
0: or perhaps in those you know formative years of, of early service career? Yeah, well, before joining the Navy, I probably didn't have any terribly amazing leadership sort of mentors or, or people to aspire to be like. I, I think for me, I probably picked a bit of it up from television, things like uh, the old BBC doc, no, semi docos on Navy and some of the sort of docudrama sort of series like Warship and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, you know, they seemed really cool at the time. And the thought of, um, for me, getting out of my hometown where I felt a little bit stuck and away from family and going and doing something adventurous with travel and the possibility of doing some flying, I thought, yep, sign me up. So off I went. Yeah, right. We both graduated from the Naval
1: College at the same time. You were on a bit of a different path. But what were those leadership influences like in the Navy? I mean, can you remember those leadership experiences? Were, were they positive or negative? What was that experience like?
0: Yeah, I do remember them, and they were both positive and negative. And I think that back in the dark ages when we were going through those sorts of things, I feel, I don't know what you would think, happy to discuss, I felt that we were left by and large to figure it out for ourselves. I think we talked about the idea of leadership quite often, and it was considered to be an important thing, Yes. But there was very, to my memory, very little sort of purposeful, directed learning and teaching on that particular subject. So I think what we did is we looked a little bit at person A and thought, no, don't like that at all. I'm not doing that. And looked at person B and thought, yeah, that's really good. I'll do some of that and I'll have a certain proportion of my own thoughts in there as well. And you just ended up with, sort of by osmosis and by your own nature and whether you were curious or not, some kind of leadership ability, Yeah. but not very directed. Yeah. I
1: think it proves the point that we're all going to have those leadership influences in our life, good, bad and the ugly. And mm. and I guess if people are going to be intentional about leadership in their organisations, they, they want to probably set about setting that example or being really conscious of what kind of leadership example they want to set in their organisations or leadership culture they want to set. What
0: are your thoughts? Yeah, you yeah, couldn't agree more because otherwise you just get what you get, you get Default position, and it's. We, I think we've got to do better than that. Mm. I've got a story about that kind of thing that I felt well may be relevant. But I, when I start left navy years and years after we joined, and was, was working for Qantas, and I think we'll talk more about that later. Mm. We ended up with some very interesting characters, you might say, in terms of leadership in Qantas. I, I, I think it's fair to say, mid nineties, I'm talking about, who were just quite difficult characters to work with. Mm. But they were approaching retiring age, which would have been 60 at the time, and been in the company 40 years. And you go, well, why are they like that? And on reflection, they're like that, because they never probably had any directed leadership training, I suspect. I'm not trying to be too hard on my predecessors or former bosses or anything. But if they're in the company at age 60, in the mid-90s, been in the company 40 years, they started in the mid-50s or early 50s. So guess who trained them? Mm-hmm. World War II bomber command pilots. Yeah who, you know, finished the war at age 21, 22, and probably spent most of it yelling at each other, you know. So that leadership model, they carry it through, you do what you're taught, you do what you observe. And they're still using that leadership model in the mid 90s. Mm. I mean, years and years later, because they haven't any directed leadership training in a different area. They're just doing what they're taught. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what that says is that organisations, when you recognise
1: that there is a challenge or a problem in that leadership culture, that you've got to, You do have to do something that changes direction and it needs to be intentional, deliberate, demonstrative even
0: to shift that. Yeah, agree 100%. Otherwise, you just end up with what you had last century. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to do better. Yeah. So after graduation, you pursued the flying career in the Navy. What was that like? Where did you serve in that role? Well, I had an amazingly fortunate life and career in many ways, but certainly with the Navy stuff. So I left Naval College at the same time as you, of course, and we went to the fleet and we did our, our seamanship sort of training and officer of the watch training. And that was all fine. And as soon as that was over, well, a year later I went and did flying training, which was always my aim. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was very fortunate. I, um, I managed to get through the Air Force training, which all Navy pilots do. And so it was Point Cook on CT4s and over in Pierce on Mackie's. And I enjoyed it very much, and I'd kind of made a commitment to myself that I need to give this my all because I thought this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it in some form or some company or other. If I don't pass this, I'm going to go and pursue it outside of Navy. So my commitment to successful completion was pretty strong, Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I was very lucky to to finish up, and I'd flew helicopters. Mm -hmm. So I flew variously squirrel helicopters early on, later on Sea Kings, did some training in the UK on Sea Kings. Mm. I had a couple of years flying jet rangers off Moresby, the hydrographic survey ship that's long since gone. Mm. By the way, everything I ever flew or sailed on is in a museum or is a dive wreck. (laughs) Yeah, Moresby did a year with the Army. I then went to Seahawks at fairly short notice and spent the rest of my time flying Seahawk helicopters. Mm. And enjoyed them probably most of all great yeah a big aircraft and the navy version of the black hawk that saw you have some operational service is that right oh yeah yeah i mean nothing too flash went to one of the early damask deployments Hmm. which was after gulf war one and before gulf war two doing united nations sanctions against iraq so there's a lot of lot of fast raping boarding operations and Mm -hmm. you know surface search and surface picture compilation and general utility stuff but lots of good flying and really quite rewarding to see that all happen and safely and get home safely. Everyone was fine.
1: Yeah so for your time in the Navy what do you think were the biggest lessons from your time actually in the service?
0: Oh gosh there's so many the biggest ones though I thought it's all about our people I think. Mm -hmm. Capability is of course very important and having the right equipment to do the job but no no amount of equipment will get you over the line if your people aren't in the right place. And so as leaders, I think that's something that we really need to just to spend a lot of time working on and focusing on and, and contemplating in our, you know, day-to-day service, I think. And I think it's true outside of Navy as well. Yeah. In my airline career as well. Yeah.
1: Can you, is there a specific example of sort of where you, where that, you th- can think back to your time in the Navy where that was so important that it
0: made the difference to the outcomes? Oh... Uh, I don't know any particular thing, but more of a generalized thing. I just always liked to know everybody on each ship I was on and know every, obviously every person in my department really well. And yeah, so being on ships' flights, I always took the time every day to talk to not just the important people on the ship, but to get around and, and say good day. And yeah. it's funny, I, I'm actually really happy that. Fast forward quarter of a century, I still keep in touch with some of the people who worked for me Mm. in a really positive social way. Yeah. And that's sort of, yeah, just one real blessing in my life, I think.
1: Yeah. We actually don't realise that impact we're going to have on people Mm. in that moment or many years later. Yeah. And that sort of connecting with people daily, walking around, knowing their name, knowing that they've got another life
0: other than the one I've been in, in the Navy is so important. Yeah, that, that's right. And at the other end of the scale from that, you can have, certainly in the airline world, we have to form teams fairly fast because you very often go to work and fly with someone you've never met before. Mm. So there's standard operating procedures and things we do in the same order and the same fashion all the time to so that any departure from that kind of standardisation is quite obvious, and that serves us very well. Mm. But in terms of forming teams quickly, it always surprises me that just once in a while you get someone who's absolutely not interested in sort of communicating very well. Mm. And when I used to teach uh, human factors or crew resource management at Qantas, I used to say, you know, you've got to always, when you go on a trip with people, just as to the brand new joiners, you've got to ask the 10 questions. And they'd say, well, what are the 10 questions? Well, the 10 questions are like, where do you come from? Are you married? Are you single? Do you have kids? What did you do before Qantas? Mm. What are you doing when we get to London? Mm. And just once, it's really important because there's a connection already that people are talking. And they're easy questions. They're not set. Mm. They can be different 10 questions, but you've got to ask them, right? Mm. And the, the other end, the sort of tr- train of thought is there's people I would have gone to, you know, 10 days, 13 days to London, and they would have no idea to the answer of any of those questions. Mm. And I, how do I know that? I never asked. Yeah, right. So I didn't have that connection. Yeah,
1: it's important. Well, you've already alluded to it. You just made a decision to leave the Navy after, what's nineteen and a half 19 and a half years? Yeah, yeah, about that. Yeah. And you pursued a, a commercial flying career. You can tell us about that. What was the transition like?
0: Yes. Well, I always had in mind that that was probably what I was going to do. I always thought around about the 20-year mark. Turned out to be just less than that. But, yeah, I worked towards that. It was interesting. Firstly, there was a lot of civil licensing requirements and exams that needed doing. Hmm. And so I had a couple of years there where I did a new exam every month to get it all done. Hmm. Because the train of thought was that if airlines recruit, you need to have everything ready to go now rather than going, oh, yeah, there's the ad. I better start doing some study. Too late. Mm -hmm. So I did all that. And that kept me pretty busy while I was on exchange with the Army. But I also did exams while I was on the Seahawk flight on Darwin. Mm -hmm. So Nigel Coates invigilated my exams at sea in the Middle East. Right. How's that? Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, sealed them all up and put it in the mailbox. Well, for
1: those that don't know, Nigel Coates was our senior cadet at the college, wasn't he? went back when we were 15-year-olds
0: and um, went on to be... That's right. An exceptional bloke and, yeah, yeah later on, fleet commander. Yeah, yeah. yeah So, yeah, great fellow. Yeah. He was a mere lieutenant commander when I was working with him for that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that was enjoyable. Sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> oh, God, oh, it was about that transition to Qantas. Oh, yes. And a commercial flying career.
1: And what was that like?
0: Yeah, I, I did work towards it. Yeah. Yeah, I was purposeful. Mm. on that as well. And it's an interesting transition too, because things we I think we take for granted, particularly in terms of people's skills and looking after people in the Defence Force, I think are less sort of obvious or less practised in the civil world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I hope that's not too out of line to say, but I felt like we did a better job of it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a consciousness, isn't it, of an organisation. I mean, the the military service, of course, is a vocation that is a 24-7, 365, and it's more than just a job because it's actually serving your country. And I think there are obligations and, you know, I often reflect the fact that, you know, leadership became part of our DNA from almost the day we joined, whether it was the good, bad or the ugly. Yes. And, I, you know, I think organisations sort of often in terms of working out what kind of leadership they need to have in their organisations, if you go back to the maybe the 80s and 90s and maybe even 2000s, perhaps it was a subject, but it wasn't necessarily consciously important. But if you just look at the last couple of years in what we've been
0: dealing with COVID, mm. like leadership has been so critical. Absolutely, yeah. And this is the thing, when, you know, it's not... During the everyday, easy, just another day in the office kind of day that you necessarily need to be displaying amazing leadership. It's when things, when things go bad, all of a sudden, then it's sort of Mm. it's your chance to shine, I think, or your chance to be found wanting. Yeah. The thing is, if you've never thought about it before that day, then mm, you know it's not going to be an easy thing, is it? No. I think the other, I think the thing I'm
1: thinking of while you're talking about that is the the fact that leadership starts with the foundations you lay today when everything's going fine because it's that environment that you set that allows you to respond to when things are going to help.
0: Yeah, exactly right. It does. And it's the thought process that you have in place well before the day of the shambles, I think, that actually will get you over the line on the day of the disaster or the day, it doesn't need to be a disaster, but the day when you need to be displaying that leadership. Yeah, And to me, as I say, I keep coming back to people, but I've always believed in, as I know you do too, but the, uh, the thought of servant leadership is really, really, really important. Navy pushes that a lot with divisional systems, so a divisional officer looking after some senior sailors and a bunch of junior sailors Hmm. who work in that same department or sort of branch or work area. Having quite a bit of responsibility from a young age to look after administratively, discipline in a disciplinary way and also in promotion and advancement and reporting of all those people. And it just actually... It makes you realise you've got a lot of responsibility in your hands as a young fella to really either make or break some of your people and Mm. yeah it's just really important to to work for them as you know
1: yeah yeah so your commercial flying career you know the highs and lows you traveled the world flown the world I love watching you sort of post occasionally of you flying sort of between LA and uh, the east coast of Australia and you know whether it be a sunrise or the track or whatever it was and but there were that environment in a commercial airliner cockpit with the crew, there are some really important structures that are in place or frameworks that are in place to help you get that optimum performance of
0: people. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, yes, there are. And the biggest thing that we have is that um, requirement, as I said earlier, to form a team quickly and to get on with the job. And we do that by various things. I like to connect with people and socialise with them when we're away and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that will get us through is just following the instructions pretty much, Mm -hmm. following the SOPs, doing the job in a very standardised way so that any departure from that standard or that usual routine is quite obvious to whoever's with you. But even more important than that to me, the idea of crew resource management is really, really important as well. So what I'm talking about specifically there, it's a wide-ranging subject, but the ability or the willingness to speak up when needed, to notice what's going on, to notice when something's going wrong, to have a solution and to be to feel willing and able to say to your boss, hey, boss, excuse me, mm. or in the Navy, hey, sir, excuse me, mm. or what, however you want to frame it and keep at it until you get the response or the result that you need, particularly in terms of safety. Airlines variously over the years. Some have done it better than others. Some cultures do it better than others. But there can be always an authority gradient. We have a captain and a first officer and a second officer, so there is an authority gradient, and it's not a democracy in an airliner. There is still a boss. Yeah. But in some cultures, and some airlines particularly, there is a very, very steep authority gradient to the extent where when the boss is doing it wrong, mm. the first officer is so unable to speak up or feels so unable to speak up, they literally would rather die than embarrass the boss. Mm. And they've demonstrated that tragically time and time again in the olden days. So we spend a lot of time trying to say to our people, hey, you know, there's an authority gradient. It's there for a reason. It's not a democracy. If the boss says, yeah, then I'm going to do it this way, I've heard you, but we're still doing it my way. That's completely valid. Mm. But if you think something's not right, you've got to speak up always, 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 and you pursue it to a logical and safe conclusion. Mm. And there's plenty of applicability of that in other sort of scenarios as well. It's the, the guy that goes in to have his gammy leg amputated and the nurse goes, oh, I was pretty sure it was the left one, but I see him chopping off the right one. Yeah. Turns out she was right but yeah. didn't speak. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. But that still happens in 2022 20 in, in the world. Yeah. So a lot of, lot of stuff like that. Yeah, that sort of uh, authority gradient is almost a,
1: would be a reflection of the culture you have in your organisation where there's one where People aren't feeling like they can they can raise a concern, or or there is one where actually there is a place where we can raise a concern. Ultimately, a decision will be made by the captain, but you know,
0: yeah, everybody gets to have an input. Exactly right. And I used to enjoy there's a couple of uh, CEOs I worked for on frigates back in the day, mm. who you would know if I named them. But in Hods meetings, there was quite a heated discussion. Mm. It was full and frank discussion always never a hassle, mm. and then a decision was made, and we opened the door from the meeting, and we we're all on the same page, and there was never any dissension outside of that room. Yeah, but you knew you'd been heard, and sometimes you'd been heard, acknowledged, and yeah, we will do it that way. That's a better idea. Mm. And this is one of the things that, you know, again, talking about crew resource management for airline people, but I think it works in the rest of the world. The part of the way of encouraging your juniors to speak up to manage upwards, if you like, to you is to, you know, disavow perfection, saying, hey, don't have all the answers. Mm. I think, you know, I've been at it longer than you and I'm, you know, in a different seat, different uniform slightly, more stripes perhaps, but I'd, I'm not going to know all the answers. So if you think I'm getting it wrong, I want you to tell me. Mm.
1: So you've got an example of that from your actual flying career, that particular situation?
0: Um, I have examples of... No, I don't have any terribly adverse ones from myself because... I was always quite consultative. You can't always consult. You don't always have time. No. I mean, if you know we're on short final to the runway and there's something not right, I'm not going to ask everyone what they think. I'm just going to go around. <laughs> but if we're halfway across the Pacific and we might have to divert later because it looks like there might be fog, mm. we'd have a discussion about how far down track we could go towards Sydney before we turn right and go to Brisbane or whatever the scenario is. We'd have a we'd chat about it. Mm. And by the time we make the decision, every you know, there's nothing more to consult because we've had a bit of a chat.
1: Yeah. In our conversation just a couple of weeks ago, I remember you sharing that idea that, you know, you part of that, you know, 14, 16-hour flight isn't spent sort of, you know, sort of in neutral. It's actually spent
0: working through the what-if scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. If you're wise. Mm. Yeah. So we're talking about threat and error management, yeah. I guess. And, yeah. So, yes, thinking about the what-ifs is really important. mm so, obviously, I think most, I hope all of our people flying would be flying along their planned track or left and right of it to, to go around weather if necessary. Mm. But knowing where the nearest airfield they could land is, how far away it is, what direction of turn am I going to make just for starters? Mm. They might have a showing on their nav display. So, you know, easy enough to just go straight towards something if something terrible happens. But, yeah, and knowing what the weather is is in each of those locations, Mm. always knowing what the weather is at the destination Mm. because time and time again airlines get caught out with a 10-hour flight where the weather's going to be fine at the destination and suddenly fog comes in in the last 45 minutes before top of descent and they don't notice. Yeah, right. Because it's fine. It's going to stay fine. Mm, Not so much. (laughs) the weather you get what you
1: get i love the what if that you shared with me in our earlier conversation which was the one you know you're over the himalayas near everest and Mm. and suddenly you lose air uh, pressure cabin pressure and you've got to descend knowing that actually there's mountains out there which is really important
0: yeah absolutely so overarching thing for cabin depressurization is you want to get the airplane below ten thousand feet so that People can breathe and they don't die. So that's easy enough to understand. But if the terrain's 28,000 feet and you're at 33, then you can't go directly down to 10,000. You need to have a plan. Mm. And, yeah, we would literally have a a long track, a decision point where we'd go onwards and then descend over steps to eventually get down low or prior to that decision point where we'd turn around and head back towards wherever the low ground is depending on direction of travel Mm. and descend cautiously. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't just blunder in. Now, the thing is, if you haven't briefed that, you don't have the piece of paper details all that in front of you and you're in the middle of the night mm. and you're wearing an oxygen mask and it's everything's spogged up and it's all, you know, you're pressure your breathing and, you know, you can hear people screaming in the cabin. It's too late then to start thinking about it. You're probably going to mess it up. Yeah. But if you thought it all through and even planned, put the route into the flight management computer so it's sitting there right next to you, all you've got to do is activate it, execute it, mm. press the button, actually makes it pretty easy yeah now you've got time to think Mm. and that's what it does for you
1: yeah it's that that preparation and we you know often refer to as the six p's it's like yes having a plan or and preparing for contingencies and i can't help but think you know exploring business continuity the what-ifs in the last couple of years not many organizations would have potentially seen a pandemic that would have change their business, stop their business, had them to reinvent how they actually do business, even change product lines. But there's some lessons in that, isn't there?
0: Yeah, yeah, there really is. I think any business or any leader should be thinking about these sorts of things. I think you're right. I don't think too many had been, whether it's, you know, any government probably around the world, certainly airlines. To be fair, though, I mean, I think there's a lot of we're not really sure where this is going, so we need to make it up as we're going along. So, mm-hmm. you know, who'd be a politician, right? But yeah. Yeah, but if you have had a bit of a think about it, things do go better. And you see that in, in some of the military stuff too. I know that there's you know exercise planning and you know disaster relief sort of planning and sort of workshopping. How, how might that look? How long does it take to get a, a ship to Tonga, for example? Yes. So it's not the first time anyone's ever thought of it come the day of the disaster, bushfires. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: You had a particular incident in your career on a flight from uh, Singapore to Sydney? To Perth, to Perth, right? And QF seventy two, able to share a little bit about that because there were there were some significant lessons I think which occurred in that aircraft that are also relevant to how we think about business.
0: Sure thing. So in twenty five words or less, QF seventy two was that route. It was an Airbus A three hundred and thirty, crew of three. I was the first officer. So with three pilots, we're each having a break during the course of the cruise, and I was taking the last break. When I left the flight deck, everything was completely ops normal. And we were closing towards the West Australian coast, heading towards Perth. And out to our left was Learmonth at Northwest Cape. Mm. I left the flight deck and went back to make a cup of coffee. So literally through the door, fifteen paces to the business class galley. I was making a cup of coffee when all of a sudden there was some sort of quite uncharacteristic elevator movement. So a bit of a rumble, and I could feel it. And which was interesting because I thought that's not right. Because I'd only just left the flight tech, so my situational awareness about the weather in front of us and what the wind was doing was was right up there. Mm. And then, just as I was pondering that, all of a sudden there was this enormous crash, and everyone who wasn't restrained by their seatbelt was pounded through the ceiling, and then about a second later, pounded into the into the deck. Mm. And then, yeah, there was a gap of about a minute, and then the whole scenario repeated itself a second time. Mm. So there was a lot of lot of injured people in the cabin of the aircraft. Mm. So 315 people on board, 112 people, including me, didn't have their seatbelts on. Mm. And, you know, it's crazy. I was, again, threatened error management. You hit a bump in, in an airliner and you don't have your seatbelt on, you get chances of getting hurt almost zero if you've got a seatbelt on. Mm. But they're high if you don't have a seatbelt on. Mm. So it always surprises me when I'm a passenger and I just watch people take their seatbelts off and just leave them yeah. beside them. Yeah. Anyway, little advertisement for safety. That's <laughs> <Yes>, right. <laughs> supporting aviation safety <laughs> always 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 but it is a bit silly but anyway there was a lot of people hurt a lot of people screaming particularly before the second pitch down event which was basically the nose slamming down everyone flying up in response to that there was again that precursory rumble and i think people knew what was going to occur again mm-hmm. so that kind of you know screaming that started before the event the second time was just sort of a bit unnerving and stuff as well very messy in there mm-hmm. I think there was 12 serious injuries. No one died. Mm. 112 minor injuries, mm. and off we went. So I had to get back to the flight tech and see what was going on. I knew where we were, I knew what altitude we were at, and all the rest of it. And I couldn't actually communicate with the flight tech because there were systems down. Mm-hmm. For starters, that eventually was reestablished, and I got back in there. But my big thing was, and again, threat and error management: the what if. As a first officer in an airline, you're only a heartbeat away from a field promotion. Yeah. Okay? So yeah, let me just say it out loud, if the boss dies, now you're the boss. Yeah. And it happens with a monotonous regularity. Mm. And I'm wondering if Kev's okay. Kev was the captain on that flight. Mm. He was, so that was good. So I get back into my seat and we do all the stuff. But it's the what-ifs that made it easier because... Or right, I'd only just left the flight deck, but I knew where the aeroplane was. I knew where Learmonth was relative to us. I knew where Perth was relative to us. I knew what the weather was in both of those places. And I also knew what the state of the cabin was. So I had a really good mental picture of, you know, what we needed to do. Mm. And this was pretty much the same. Or Kev was in, in agreement as well. There wasn't too much, there was no dissension. We knew what to do.
1: Mm. Mm. The what ifs were are effectively a risk
0: mitigation for. An automated system that failed. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Not just automated systems that fail. There's things that can be a threat that you don't have any control over. I've said weather is a classic one. Mm. You know, so you can you can plan for all of those, but there's other things like, you know, say somebody having a heart attack halfway across between Australia and New Zealand. Mm. You know, it's something you need to sort out because you've got no control over. But you can you can't mitigate against it. It just either happens or doesn't. Mm. Same with you know, same with some of the weather events. Yeah. But yeah. The what-ifs are important. Yeah, being able to respond. Mm, yeah, exactly. Rather right. than react. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the big thing is, yeah, before you even do any of the diversion kind of things to dealing with the problem, mm. the biggest thing for me is not having a knee-jerk reaction to the actual control input mm. that's required because mm. the instinctive thing is to grab the controls when the nose is going down uncontrollably and r- pull it back as hard as you can. Yes. And that's a terrible response. Yes, Actually, you want to sit on your hands for a nanosecond and then go take a breath and then mm. respond. Mm. Um, and we've seen terrible, you know, knee-jerk reactions in disasters like Air France four four seven. If your listeners wouldn't know about that, but the Air France Airbus that crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, yeah. So I won't go into that, but nah. yeah, knee-jerk reactions in airliners are terrible. Yeah. So
1: there's some application to that, to the business world, isn't there, in terms of the fact that we need to be running the what-ifs on a regular basis? Yeah, I think so. The fact that we need to perhaps consider whether we're going to automate certain processes in our organisations or what meets more hands-on, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think there is applicability in a lot of different things. If you have thought ahead, if you have thought about the what-ifs, and no, just even what the initial reaction should be, I think you're going to be well-placed to deal with hmm. you know, unexpected little disasters or even big disasters. Hmm. Even a little bit of preparation goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a career in Qantas
1: and uh, you now sort of look into other things to do, I guess, in a sort of corporate sense
0: in that third sort of age of a career. What are your thoughts about what's next? Well, I think it'll be a little bit less exciting, involve a lot less travel, but... Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to keep a finger in the pie with with Navy, and I'm doing some work in the leadership development program for them. Yeah, which I'm quite enjoying. And um, it's funny; I, I try not to ever start my or have any of my debriefs with when I was a midshipman, because no one wants to hear about that. But yeah, I do have some applicable stories that I think generally received well. But I just don't preface them when I was a midshipman because no one wants to hear that from an old bloke. Yeah, I think. <laughs>
1: So, look, somebody's starting out now in a leadership role or is sort of in that middle to senior level of leadership. What advice would you give them today? You know, what, what
0: do they need to pay attention to? Okay, good question. Well, I think that in back what we had in the olden days, I think there's still a place for looking at what you see in front of you. Mm. Okay, looking for the good people who lead well and also learning from, you can learn from people who do it really poorly. Mm. Even if it's to say, I won't be doing any of that. Mm. So there's still what we had, which was, wasn't much direction, or wasn't much sort of purposefulness towards it. There's still something to be learned from that. But I'll just say that there's actually a whole bunch of stuff out there, a whole bunch of resources out there. So mm. I personally think that, yeah, there's leaders who are just innately have it by their nature. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of us mere mortals, look around and look for opportunities and be teachable and just, yeah, value your people and get on board with the idea of servant leadership. I think that is just so important. It's a bit
1: about how do I put my own ego in the pocket so that I actually can focus
0: on the things you just talked about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've got to be able to just have a bit of humility about it. It's funny too. I think if you do disavow perfections, admit you know straight up, you're not going to have all the answers all the time. So that's why I need your input. To people, I think they are, oh, good. Mm. My input is welcome. I can actually speak to this or that problem without fear of well, any fear for for whatever reason. I think it's just it sets you up to succeed. It doesn't set you up to look stupid. It sets you up to at the end of the day. You have a whole bunch of people, particularly in the military, I think, who understand that you're the boss and want to make you look good and want to show you how clever they are. Mm. Let them. <laughs> How's that for simple? Mm.
1: <laughs> well yeah yeah no well it's always good to have more people that can, that can not about looking good but actually the fact that oh, i don't take your point you know we're not the experts in everything and when we realize that we're not being able to open the space up for others to make a contribution i mean the you know open it to the brains trust so to speak in your organization absolutely makes sense to me
0: yeah to me too and when it's all over, at the debrief, I think that the other thing that's really important is we admonish privately and praise publicly. I mm. think that's really important for our people too. And I don't mean just, you know, effusive nonsense, but, you know, when something's done well, say so and do it, do it publicly, I think, is just gold for people.
1: Yeah. Well, Peter, we could
0: talk forever
1: on this subject, <laughs> I'm sure, and, and many other stories. Look, it's been great to have you on the podcast we always finish with the rapid-fire questions, and as, I, as I've said often, they're rapid-fire questions, but they don't necessarily need rapid-fire answers. Right. So let's
0: fill in the blanks. So leadership is? Service. Mm-hmm. And do you have a go-to leadership book? I don't probably have a leadership book, but in my tool of the trade that I use a heck of a lot is a lot of the stuff written by James Reason in terms of pre resource management. Mm-hmm. Which is leadership for airline guys, really? Yeah, by and large. So mm-hmm. yeah, differently titled, but I, I get a lot out of that. Yeah, cool. Next question: Wish I had known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known that I had, I could just relax and be more confident earlier in my career, rather than being hard on myself all the time.
1: Mm.
0: It's something I see in debriefs too. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you saw that all through your career, and
1: yeah, and also in the airline as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: what I mean by the debriefs is the assess- self-assessment. Yeah. People are thinking they're not doing very well. The assessment by others, people are widely very well regarded by their peers and didn't even know it.
1: Yeah. Hmm. It's a big risk for all of us, isn't it, that sort of self-talk that sort of says, hey, I'm not good enough? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Next question, you get a, a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your organisation. What are your first words to that person?
0: What can I do for you right now?
1: Okay, awesome. And, Peter, the last question is, do you have a go-to quote on
0: leadership that's had some influence on you? Yeah, in the thought process of needing to persevere with stuff, I've always liked Winston Churchill's quotes, and uh, he's got some pearls, I've got to say. But the one that comes to mind for me is this, where he says, success is the ability to go from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. Oh, that's cool. And he demonstrated that a lot in his political and personal career, I guess. But yeah, I think there's yeah, that's you just got to press on, press on. Yeah. Very often, it's not the smartest person who gets there in the end; it's the person who just perseveres. I believe. Yeah. We're actually doing
1: this on the Monday after the Australian Open just finished, and I can't help but think both the the two singles matches over the weekend were exactly that example where you know you lose a point in tennis and you come back, and mm. particularly Rafa Nadal's. Uh, match last night where he went from two sets down to come back to win three
0: sets to two. What an amazing outcome, yeah. And Ash with her win coming from 5-1 down in the second set, amazing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah exactly. But you see, here again, in terms of like, again, servant leadership and that kind of, just that train of thought anyway, Ash Barty, you know, getting her uh, trophy from Yvonne Gould on Cawley, having Cathy Freeman in the stadium and all that sort of stuff, you're like, oh, look at you three, aren't you amazing? She goes, no, not me. I'm not in their league. She's always she always defers to the team. She always yes. thanks her coach. She's always yes. positive about her opponent. She's just she's perfect to this girl. I just think the world of her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, servant leadership is about
0: putting others first. Yeah. How how do you serve? Yeah. That's right. And the thing is for someone who run who is, you know, number one in the world in an individual sport to always refer back to family, team, support staff, partner coach hmm. the rest of them and give credit to her opponent is something that I think has been lacking for a while. Yeah. Anyway.
1: And it's certainly, it's absolutely certainly relevant to how we lead in organisations. Is actually, it's not about me, it's about the people in the team.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, imagine a CEO saying that, yeah, the company's done really well, but it's done really well because of all of you people, all of you men and women working Yeah. towards it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Great way to finish, Peter. Thanks so much for being on the podcast and we'll put it in the show notes how people can connect with you on LinkedIn, et cetera. But yeah, go well and great to have
0: you on the show. Thanks, man. Really enjoyed chatting to you about this stuff and always good to catch up. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like
0: you stole it.